0: Welcome to This Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati. Your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo.
1: Hi, thanks for being here with us. I'm Jordan Bonimo an associate professor of emergency medicine and neurocritical care here at the University of Cincinnati, and I'm here on behalf of the National Stroke Education Center with one of our guests who I'm so excited to introduce, Dr. Bill Knight, also an associate professor of emergency medicine and neurosurgery and neurocritical care, and also a surgical intensivist and a member of
0: our stroke team. I'm going to have him introduce himself here uh, and tell you who he is and what he does. Thanks, Jordan. As uh, Jordan mentioned, I'm an emergency physician by training, and I also attend clinically in the neuro ICU as well as the surgical ICU and uh, take call for our regional stroke team. uh, Also, involved in the uh, management and education of uh, advanced practice providers in the emergency medicine setting.
1: So, Bill, you, as an expert in emergency medicine and emergency stroke care, I think are the perfect person to talk to us about doing stroke scores, and evaluating stroke patients in the emergency department. As EM physicians and providers, a lot of us know the basics. We know how to recognize hemiplegia. We get when patients are markedly aphasic. But there are a lot of pitfalls to that exam. I've heard you give lectures over the years, and it's been really compelling to hear you talk about a few of these pitfalls. And I'm hoping that you can share some of that information with us today.
0: Sure. That's um, a it's a great lead in. I think first and foremost, I think we're in general talking about the NIH stroke scale, um, a scale that we all know and love, particularly on the the stroke side. Um, and, I, and I'm an advocate for it. I'm a, I'm a fan of it. However, it, it does have its limitations, I think, particularly in the emergency department and for practitioners, whether that be physicians or physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurses, students that don't do it on a regular basis. I think some of the nuances get lost. And I think my overriding message or take-home point would be that the NIH stroke scale is not a surrogate for the neurologic exam. As you mentioned, the more kind of classic or localizable syndromes that fit into the NIH stroke scale, hemiplegia, aphasia, gaze preferences, etc., your score is going to be higher and that makes it not hard. The higher your score, the more disabling somebody may be. However, the, the, the contra to that is that the lower the score, I think the more nuanced your, your physical exam needs to be and getting a little bit more into the weeds of doing a little bit more of a detailed neuro exam, recognizing that split that the NIH stroke scale is not the neurologic exam. So For example, if you're hemiplegic, you don't need to get the patient up and walk them. It's pretty obvious that they're going to have a a pretty significant um, disability with their motor score. However, if they have a subtle or quote-unquote mild weakness, recognizing the impact to that patient by getting them up and walking them or even looking at an arm weakness in terms of can they do their their ADLs, can they button a shirt, can they go to the bathroom, can they feed themselves, all becomes a little bit more relevant than just the number of the NIH stroke scale. the NIH Stroke Scale number is what a lot of us are taught to think of as what
1: makes a mild, moderate, or major stroke. I think I just heard you say that the stroke score itself, that number is probably less relevant than the disability itself. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean. Tell us about disability assessment versus numbers, because I thought that we could just say minor stroke was a stroke score less than six.
0: For sure. No, and I think that that's the way a lot of us were taught um, back in the day early in, in, in training, was separating out based on some of those early trials of that concept of severe stroke and not only how they're managed, but some of the risks that go along with that. And same thing with mild strokes. They had a, a different approach to treatment. And I think that what we've learned throughout the years is, is and, and what I've moved away from, is getting rid of those terms of mild, medium, moderate, severe strokes, and just moving it straight into a binary score of, of disabling or non-disabling. I think we've all seen uh, strokes that are low on the stroke scale, but are not mild by any stretch. And so as an emergency physician, I'm right-handed. If I had a very subtle weakness of my left hand, um, that would be more disabling to me not being able to manipulate a laryngoscope or any of the other procedures I do with my non-dominant hand versus uh, a right-handed where maybe my handwriting gets a little bit worse. And thinking to things like uh, visual field cuts and the impact to driving or navigating uh, shopping centers or sidewalks and, and, and elements like that, that you can have some of those lower stroke syndromes, lower score syndromes, they're going to impact people very differently. Um, obviously, the higher the stroke scale, again, going to be obviously more disabling than some of those lower ones. And I think that if we rate people as this is disabling to this particular person, even if it's something as simple as a dysarthria that affects a singer differently than it does uh, a radiologist or a hemianopsia that uh, affects a a sports player differently than it would um, an elderly patient who is retired, all of those can become very individualized um, rather than trying to rate them as mild, medium, and severe.
1: That sounds like a really important take-home message, that you have to individualize the disability for the patient and focus more on that than the stroke score itself to determine how disabled they are by their their symptoms. It makes a, a lot of intuitive sense, and I don't think that that's been emphasized a lot in the past for emergency providers, certainly not when we were in training.
0: No, for sure. And, and I think the biggest differences is, is looking at age and what people do for a living and for fun. Um, I guess not so much being an ageist, but looking at um, I've, I've seen uh, two different individuals, one being 40, one being 80, one being working full time, the other one being retired, having very similar stroke syndrome of subtle face, arm, leg weakness with a sensory deficit. Uh, it was profoundly disabling to the employed individual and not disabling at all to the retired individual. And so looking at that on an individual basis of what makes even similar stroke syndromes different for individual um, patients will go a long way to help you gear you towards your uh, treatment modalities and options. I think it's cool too, right? So that, that helps you respect the patient's values about their own disability and, and their lifestyle. I think it's great. Well, and not only that, uh, but you can throw in that the patients with the lower stroke scores are more likely to be uh, able to participate in that shared decision-making. For sure, especially when language isn't involved. So I got a question for you.
1: It, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm exhausted. It's an overnight shift. Been getting our tail whooped all night. And a patient comes in at, from triage, and they're labeled as a potential stroke. These syndromes that you've talked about, the thing that I'm always afraid of is missing something subtle, Right. What are some of the subtle things that clinicians miss in the emergent setting that we should keep our eyes open
0: for? What jumps out at you? The biggest one uh, that I think uh, those of us who do both emergency medicine and stroke that I get wailed on is the weak and dizzy, Um, (coughs) any kind of dizziness. I think that even the the neurologists among us, um, those are the banes of their existences as well. They're hard. um, They're more likely than not going to be um, non-central or non-stroke type syndromes. Um, they're easy to miss. So anything really in the posterior circulation is going to be challenging for us. Those are the easily missed ones. The dizziness that could be the ear, it could be labyrinthitis, it could be benign peripheral uh, vertigo, uh, but you know what? It could always be a stroke. And so the, the trouble with those is there's no easy slam dunk way to diagnose those. I don't have any easy tips and tricks. It's keeping your Your antenna up, your radar up, and recognizing again that impact on disability. Can the patient walk? Are their symptoms persistent when they're sitting still? All of those elements will play into helping. The other uh, area that can be commonly missed is anything that involves extinction. And so when you have your your language, that is gonna be much more heavily favored towards the, the majority of us that are left language brain dominant. Um, the NIH Stroke Scale gets far more points. Those are easier to pick up. When people don't talk or when they don't move parts of their body, that's really easy to, to detect and to measure. With uh, somebody's neglecting one side of their body or they can't see out of one side of their visual field, those are much, much harder. And I think assessing, getting in the habit of assessing those visual fields um, how do people pay attention to their surroundings? Um, that has big impact in their rehabilitation as well. Uh, some of our neurology colleagues have shared with us that it's far harder to rehab somebody with severe extinction and neglect than it is with language. Um, if you're a phasic, you're frustrated, you know what your problem is and you want to talk and get better. If you have an extinction or a neglect, uh, you don't know what your problem is and you don't care, and therefore you're not motivated to, to rehab and work with your, your rehab and your physical therapist to get better.
1: Yeah, I, I remember learning about that difference between the, the left and right hemispheres and, and the difficulty in rehabilitating patients who have uh, neglect syndromes. And I, I think that caught a lot of us by surprise, especially earlier on in our training. You, you mentioned two things that I think are really important in this. The, the first was that posterior circulation strokes weakened easier, are the bane of all of our existences, and, and you don't have a slam dunk way of, of diagnosing those clinically. But you've seen about, I don't know, 50,000 stroke patients or something crazy like that in your career. And you've treated a ton of them. Give us some tricks when you're evaluating a posterior circulation patient or, or a suspected posterior circulation patient. I'm going to ask the first question and let you run with it.
0: Oh, Do you sure. try to walk them all? Um, again, the lower the stroke score, yes. Um, if it impacts them as part of I have some mild weakness or even sensory deficits for proprioception, and then all the dizzy people, anybody who's dizzy, um, and again, dizzy is, is different based on how old you are, what your background is, what how you were raised, geography, language, all of that will, will speak into what you mean by dizzy. And so to get to the root of trying to tease out that idea of a cerebellum or a posterior circulation or a vertigo, Um, When everybody will report that syndrome is a little bit different, I do get those patients up and walk them because it's commonly easy to do a finger to nose and a heel to shin, but a good truncal ataxia or somebody that has a real problem doing a a heel toe walk, um, you can really detect quite a bit with balance if you get them out of bed and determine how they can hold themselves upright there's also the, the HINTS exam or the head impulse test of SKU. Um, a little bit out of the scope of today, but that's another uh, option to look into. Um, and then some of the, I really will dive into history. What were you doing when it started? Is, it, is there a real positional aspect to it? Does it fatigue? Does it go away if your eyes close? What's the duration? Um, recently had a young patient in her forties um, who had persistent symptoms, no matter what she did at two and a half hours. It might be peripheral, um, but the, the, the red flags go up a little bit more that it's central based on the duration of symptoms and the fact that it wouldn't fatigue with, with almost anything to include our eyes being shut.
1: That's frightening, right? And I think that a lot of us would, would hopefully pick up on that, but I think a lot of us are honestly listening to this going, oh no, right, I would, I would totally miss some of those. And I think the truth is a number of us have missed posterior circulation strokes. Just based on what we know from the epidemiologic data, the percentage of posterior strokes is much higher than the total percentage of strokes that we diagnose clinically in EM. So we've missed them for sure. But i got a particular question for you about truncally ataxia. So appendicular ataxia, arms and legs not working, not super coordinated. I think a lot of us are familiar with that. We know how to test it. Truncally ataxia may be something new to some listeners. Can you just riff on that for a second or two?
0: Sure. So a, a trunkal, as you mentioned, so appendicular using arms and legs, that's the inability to hit fine motor, hitting points such as hitting your nose or hitting a finger or moving your your. your Leg up and down your leg or walking even. But truncal is something that is very specific to your body of not being able to hold the core aspect of your body, your your abdomen, your thorax, even your down your pelvis, upright without feeling like you're off balance or falling off to a side. You'll see people try to stabilize themselves, or more importantly, when they get into a position of comfort, um, not really being interested or willing to move because of losing that sensation of balance and space, again, all revolving around the core aspects of the trunk. And so it can be something that can be a misnomer because somebody can be sitting up and looking okay in the bed. But if you start to test them or manipulate them in that bed, you'll see a lot of off balance or a lot of kind of moving or swaying just sitting in bed. I had a case of a patient
1: who had a, a case of truncal ataxia, which I young gentleman in his 40s, I think he was an engineer, and I didn't recognize it other than him having some other hints of posterior circulation disability until I stood him to walk him, and he could not maintain that truncal tone. Um, I sent him for MRI, and he actually had a cerebellar vernous lesion, which was the first one I'd ever seen, actually the first one I'd really heard about. Um, and I recognized that I might have missed that on a, on a busy shift, not doing what I was doing with that particular patient.
0: Correct. And I, and I can give you uh, an additional anecdote of an intoxicated patient who had a, a history of severe alcoholism and he represented to the to physician, I, I know intoxicated and this is not intoxicated. This is something different. And so taking that history and recognizing that. <laughs>
1: so and- he said he knows... Drunk,
0: but he wasn't drunk. This was something this else. Was, and he had a cerebellar infarct as well and, and was successfully treated. And the last piece that I'll throw in there is that idea of one one additional element is that idea of dizzy plus. I think one of our co-mentors taught us that a long time ago is that if you ever have anything of dizzy plus some other neurologic finding, dizzy plus weakness, dizzy plus trouble swallowing, dizzy plus my eyes aren't working. Dizzy plus something else in the body really ought to point you far more towards a central cause than a peripheral. Uh, often the peripheral are just dizzy alone, they fatigue, they're positional, there's a lot of elements that'll go along with it. None of those are 100%, but boy, if you have a, a dizzy plus something else neurologic, um, there are fewer few things that'll cause that other than a central cause.
1: That's that's super important to hear. So you just said dizzy plus weakness, by which I think you mean dizzy plus focal weakness. And that's totally differentiable from the weakened disease, which we talk about those those really complicated, you know, octogenarians who come in weak and dizzy. You're talking specifically about you come in dizzy, plus you have a focal weakness that that trips your why, right, that your antenna go up when you see that, and you start digging deeper. Correct.
0: Yeah. Very different than the weekend dizzy. It's 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 dizzy plus my arm's not working, dizzy plus my leg isn't working, dizzy plus I have a face droop, dizzy plus I can't see on the left side of my eye, dizzy plus I can't swallow, uh, uh, some other neurologic absence of function for sure. <laughs> dizzy plus something scary. Correct. <laughs> that totally makes sense. So So I've known you for a
1: long time and you have been invited to travel all over the world to teach stroke and emergency medicine. Through those travels, through those lectures, you've probably come up with a few core messages for the people that you're helping to educate. If you could leave our listeners with one core message around the valuation of acute strokes in an emergent
0: environment and how best to not
1: miss something, what would you tell them?
0: Uh, I think the number one thing I would say to this is don't focus on the stroke scale. Again, it's important. You have to do it. We have to document it. We have to, we have to transmit that it's a great communication tool, but focus on what the deficits are and are they disabling? Um, a patient may come in with an NIH stroke scale of 18 with hemiplegia and aphasia and a visual field cut. All of those may not in total matter to the emergency practitioner taking care of the patient, but just having hemiplegia and aphasia is enough. Those are disabling. That'll help you really get down the route to taking care of somebody. Similarly, if a patient comes in and says they can't see out of half their their vision, that's what I care about. Detect that, do that visual field um, assessment. What are the deficits and are they disabling? And if you key that a little bit more towards that neurologic exam of determining what those deficits are, and then determining whether they're disabling, that'll go a long way in helping to manage patients with strokes or suspected strokes. I love it.
1: I really appreciate you taking the time to to share your expertise with us. Um, Nice to hear that it's a challenge for someone like you too, right? Despite your extensive training and experience, the fact that it's challenging is important. Like We have to recognize this is hard stuff and we have to keep practicing at it to get good at it. Bill, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being with us at the uh, NSCC today. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, MCraig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.